This is The Guardian. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Gaudem, BuzzFeed News, Vice, why are so many publications in trouble? Here at Gaudem, we're committed to sharing the perspectives of women and non-binary people of color. If you're still putting regular white cocaine up your nose, you're basically living in the 90s. And if you work for BuzzFeed News, here are 22 reasons you're going to be down the job center tomorrow. You're listening to Pop Culture with me, Shantae Joseph for The Guardian. Now listen, I have been waking up in a cold sweat every morning, afraid to check Twitter in case another publication I love is going under. We've seen the closure of Gaudem, BuzzFeed News, full editorial layoffs at Paper Magazine, potential bankruptcy at Vice. Need I go on? I've been writing since I was like 17 and I owe so much of who I am and what I do to these publications. It's also where I found my love for pop culture, why I'm hosting this podcast. And it's on places like Gaudam where I'd find out about new black and brown artists. On BuzzFeed, I'd read the best celeb interviews and insights. And Vice has always been ahead of the curve on topics like club culture, drugs and music. These are things many bigger publications just can't offer. I remember being at the BBC and being asked to write an article about a duck in a wheelchair. Why am I writing an article about a duck in a wheelchair that's from a viral video? Moya Lothian McLean is contributing editor at Navarra Media and former political editor at Gaudem. And Jim Waterson is the Guardian's media editor who was also the political editor at BuzzFeed. So Moya, I'm going to start with you because you were Gaudem's politics editor. You probably commissioned me to write things, probably edited my work before. I want to understand what was it that Gaudem provided to journalism that other publications just weren't doing? Gaudem, I would say, provided a route for people of colour into journalism that other places weren't providing. It gave so many people their first break. It was... Its position in the market was really, really fascinating. So it became... The Guardian did a weekend takeover with it. It kept... With Michaela Cole on the cover. Yeah, it did lots of events with, like, the VNA, all these kind of British institutions. But first and foremost, media publications would look to Gaudem 
to poach the talent that they weren't hiring themselves, mm. which I thought was fascinating. Like, I got poached. I know a lot of other people got poached. People who've written for Galden, we've gone on to write for like, the New York Times, we worked yeah. for The Guardian, et cetera. And it really showed that that talent was out there, but it just wasn't being picked up. After eight years, Galdem is finally closing its doors, which is just so insane. It was like a an emotional time. This whole idea of like, I did all this stuff for this publication. like, And they kind of put it down to financial and structural difficulties in their closing there. But do you have any insight on what happened? Overall, it's because they were operating in an industry that is hostile to magazines that don't turn a massive profit. There was obviously internal things in terms of like management, hiring staff at different points um, and who was doing what and them trying to find their feet. But the real thing that closed Galdem was the fact they didn't have room to find their feet. They didn't have the grace to find their feet. They were reliant on a funding structure that was partly grants. It was partly, sometimes there was investment. The smaller budgets meant that they couldn't keep increasing the price price they're paying for writers. They couldn't really grow in the same way. They couldn't pay staff loads of money. So you can't attract the kind of talent who could maybe upscale it. When I was there, it was, you know, we were working on these constrained budgets. We had to, you know, commission writers for like 80 quid for an op-ed, mm. which is tiny. That's like very, very small. People often want to do it because they were giving us grace and we're giving people their first break. But we were dying to increase those budgets. We were dying to upscale, basically. Jim, you are The Guardian's media editor and you used to be the political editor at BuzzFeed. And that's actually how I first came across you. I used to follow you on Twitter from your BuzzFeed days. And we actually did a panel together at the Conservative Party conference. I, you probably don't even remember this. This was a long time ago. Did I do a panel there? It was, you were like hosting a like some sort of like media panel thing. And it was, I was representing the British Youth Council at the time because I was one of their trustees. Oh so I was goodness. talking about like young people in politics. And I think you were also talking about the same thing. I did a lot. When I used to be a young person, I did get booked for a lot of young people in politics. Yes. But that's also what sums it up because there was this belief that your BuzzFeed, you've yeah. worked out how to communicate with all young people. I had a crazy five years there um, where we basically burnt so much money from venture capitalists, uh, <laughs> built something that you could be really proud of and then watch as the whole thing started to collapse. Along the way, we changed quite a lot about how the media was run, but also we had the same issue as Gaudem, which was eventually uh, the established places went, well, we might as well just hire their staff away. Mm. If you're listening to this and the thing that you might not get is that if you're ever unhappy with the media that you're consuming or what you see on your feed, then understand the business model because that answers most of your questions. Mm. It explains why you might not see stories that appeal to you in the same way because advertisers can't sell against it. If you're not seeing the voices that represent you, it's because it's cheaper to get another 21-year-old to spout uh, right-wing claptrap. Uh, that will go viral rather than make a nuanced argument, which is why you don't see the nuanced argument. You see the viral clip of the person saying they want to wrap themselves in bunting and run down to Buckingham <laughs> Palace. The thing that BuzzFeed did, which a lot of other outlets didn't, was it invested in reporting rather than comment. And reporting is expensive, messy, requires you to train up people and also needs editors behind the scenes. Mm. And you just can't make as much money as another uh, attention piece. If you think your click on that aggressive headline that made you shocked is worth as much as the click on a piece that has taken months of of work knocking on doors to put together and this is there's, there's just a flaw in the whole business model of the whole media at the moment which no one's really found a solution to and small outlets like Galdem really we're seeing what's happening they're just having to shut up shop 
And when you were at BuzzFeed 24 handing out these contracts, like, did you foresee this ending? Did you foresee other companies kind of catching up with BuzzFeed's model? Or did you kind of have faith that BuzzFeed would continue to innovate and lead in this space? There was an era of really cheap money. It was really cheap for investors to put money into these things. Mm. And they convinced themselves if they put 200 million into BuzzFeed, they might end up owning the next big TV network. It was a gamble. They, they'd write a big check, say, get as fast as you can and see if you're the, you're the tech company that survives. What they didn't realize was they were investing in a media business. And the media is messy because journalists are annoying and they have <laughs> attitude and they, they want to do things their own way. And reporting is expensive and you annoy clients by writing about them. And there's all these downsides to actually doing proper journalism and proper writing. The, the BuzzFeed dream was you could somehow get credibility from the news side of things and do the silly fun, what Disney princess are you actually quizzes. <laughs> In the end, the, the whole thing just, the money wasn't there to justify the expenditure on news, to justify sending someone to the middle of Ukraine to find out what's really going on there. I think what's interesting about BuzzFeed is the comparison that I have in my head, which is between BuzzFeed and Vox News, because they're founded around similar times, whereas Vox was very reporter focused from the entire thing. And because yeah. I think of BuzzFeed's mixed model, people took it less seriously. And then the news operation has now been cut, mm. even though that's where, if you look at the New York Times and the subscriber model they've got, they kind of stayed the course. And they're like, we're going to stick with just reporting. We're going to focus on reporting the entire model that they did with the paywall, yeah. which people didn't believe in when they started. They were like, no, eventually this will win out. And it's the long-term view. Yeah. And Vox did the same because they were founded in 2014. BuzzFeed was 2011. There was a running joke in the BuzzFeed office that you'd put in a call to someone, you know, an official or a politician. And you go, yeah, I'm calling for BuzzFeed. Yeah. B-U-Z-Z-F. And, you know, it was, it was a running joke because you just hear this same conversation going on all over the office. And the real breakthrough was about 2015 when people stopped having that and they realized yeah. they were actually going to get trouble and it was going to go viral. And, yes. uh, and actually what weirdly happened was the opposite, which was we ended up at the point where Downing Street was convinced we were speaking to every young person in the country. And they were like, you know, do you want time with David Cameron? But it was that strange time of just, you know, they all were like, you you have some magic source for reaching people. And the reality was we didn't. We just knew how to tell a story that worked online. It was knowing how to talk to an online audience. And it was yes. also taking the internet seriously as a place that mattered. I want to move on a bit more to like the financial pressures and getting to things like advertising and investment and stuff, because obviously the New York Times reported last week that Vice is heading for bankruptcy. And a few weeks ago, Vice News told their employees that it was going to be closing because it's losing a lot of money. And so I really want to understand how does financing in journalism work and what are the pitfalls of the models that we rely on when it comes to finance and journalism? <laughs> well, if, you, if you can work out how to finance journalism, then you, you'd be a rich man and, and a lot of, lot of the problems with discussing would go away. Um, broadly speaking, let's split it down into advertising. And then at the broader end, you've got just sheer volume of cheap Google ads that can go on uh, clickbait articles. And then on the other end, you've got subscriptions, which is again split into either really big sites like the New York Times, who give you the full package, or the Guardian, who asks for reader contributions to support what they do. And then You've also got the niche ones, the substacks and yeah. the, the the sort of things that people care about. And and all of this, what you're noticing is the death of the middle ground. Um, you end up with either a few really big players who can reach a lot of people or some really niche stuff that matters a lot to a thousand people and they're willing to sustain that. And the, the problem is the real route between the two. How do you create the place for uh, a young journalist to mess up, to make mistakes, to learn how to report? And there is a difference here between reporting and comment. There's a lot of opportunities for comment. If you're a, yes. a young 
right winger and you want to go on GB News, you know, it's pretty easy to get that route in there and to, to get on screen pretty quickly. If you want to learn how to actually uh, work a story, which normally means years of working with an older editor to try and get the, the tips of the trade, mm. that takes time and money and expense and you need to find the audience for it. And one thing to talk about is really whether there either are the 20 somethings who want to get into this place anymore whether mm. the the idea of written news and written magazine articles is something that's as aspirational or even fulfilling to the audience when you're kind of getting into journalism I think particularly as a black woman so much of your entry into it is like writing about your personal trauma and so I kind of feel like it took me so long to kind of develop more skills around journalism that weren't based outside of like comment or first person stories because that's what, you know, that's what got clicks. That's what that's what was really interesting. And so as a result, I think there was like a huge sacrifice in terms of learning how to report or like journalism as a skill as opposed to these are my opinions. Everybody read and engage with them. And I definitely feel like like I noticed that a lot when it came to writing. And I do wonder if because of the way that journalism's changing and the way that kind of advertising's changing and funding's changing, are we going to kind of basically see like a gradual decline in like journalism in this country? I think we're already seeing a decline in journalism in this country. If you look at the sort of churn that operates in a lot of newsrooms even now, or the, even the traditional ones like say like The Independent where somewhere that I worked or the BBC behind the scenes, there's an amazing amount of churn articles they do that you might not even click on, but they are still mirroring the models of say like a BuzzFeed's lifestyle content. But I think it comes down to several things. One, if you look at the routes into journalism, they are being strangled. So the main routes in now, I would say, is university. The idea of like fellowships and apprenticeships are getting vanishingly smaller. And the people mm. who are most likely to get those are people who are from backgrounds where they're being picked up. You see that in the representation within journalism. Something I think about a lot, which I think is the broader theme that's covering this, is what is the value of knowledge nowadays? And online, everything's sort of the same. So your comment pieces, which is, you know, 800 words that you can write in two hours and it's mm. probably about a personal thing that's happened to you, have the same value to a lot of the audience, especially younger audiences who've grown up with this model as an in-depth 3,000-word reported piece. And as Jim says, something like the New York Times has the history and the tradition where they can command that readership. They have 10 million subscribers. They want to get 50 million by the end of 2027. How can you get people who've grown up with knowledge being worth exactly zero almost yeah. to buy into it and say, we have to support this? I see all the time people saying, you have to support journalism, you have to support journalism. But what's happening we're seeing is things being siloed off yeah. into places like Substack. You're already seeing journalists and content on Substack being split into strata. So people who already have big profiles mm. are getting loads of money from their Substack and actually being paid by Substack thousands of pounds to be on there. But then you see people who don't have the same public profile making content or whatever to an audience of zero. And Substack yeah. itself as a company is losing money. So you wonder how long Substack will be exactly. around because the idea is that journalism has to be profitable. But where is that profit going to come from? There is not a sustainable model for all of the news that we're creating, but also there is so little raw material reporting being put in yeah. that, you know, when we break a story at The Guardian with original reporting, you see all the facts copied onto five different sites within about an hour, which then leads to a slightly strange thing of, you know... It, so little news is being put into the sausage machine that, that what comes out the other end can be very, very thin because you get whole news cycles around single facts from the one person who bothered to check something out. Let's take a beat. And when we return, we'll be talking all about what social media is doing to journalism. But just a quick one, if you're loving this episode or 
any of these episodes in the series, then you know what I'm going to ask you to do. Leave a review, subscribe, and remember, we don't gatekeep, so share with all of your friends. We'll be back after this. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I want to get back into the role and the experience of writers. Obviously, I still do like bits of freelance journalism here and there, but nowhere near as much as I was doing before, because obviously like it just doesn't pay well. So I'm having to hustle and grind the days that I'm not at The Guardian to find like other bits of work to compensate me. And I do think it's like really, really interesting now because you're kind of seeing people think about, well, how can I use my writing skills in a different place? Like loads of writers I know have also taken up like copywriting. What do you think journalists or where do you think journalists are going when they're kind of realizing that it's impossible for me to like sustainably exist in this industry? I think it's very complicated. When young freelance journalists in particular ask me about how to make a sustainable living from journalism, I say, you need another job. Mm -hmm. In terms of where people go, I think copywriting is a big one. What we're also seeing, and I talked about this earlier with the value of knowledge, is the threat of chat GPT, mm. which is coming for copywriting. You're, people are talking about the existential crisis in copywriting because chat GPT, it can't produce sort of journalism, but it can produce broad copy if you feed it in that I think a lot of brands will just be like, great, we've cut up, we, all we need is one person to check over this and we're done. So that's also something that's being threatened. And again, knowledge, skills, completely devalued by the rise of technology. Let's be frank here. It's it's money, wages and salary. And, uh, you know, local news reporters can be on under 20 grand. The idea that you could get by on a few hundred quid a month, it, particularly if you feel you have to move to London, mm. uh, it's no longer sustainable due to the cost of living. You've got to be almost a bit mad to want mm. to go into journalism at the moment, unless you've got a really clear way of doing it and making money or you get on one of the handful of still operating schemes that train people up or frankly if you've got family money that means you can do it kind of as a hobby job i do think there's a bit of hope in the youtube kind of semi-influencer model but that's more for commentary it's it's not really a way to support reporting and finding out new facts and maybe that's fine maybe you just want to be a pundit and, and a pine on the world but if you want to support actual reporting and do actual reporting God, there's so few opportunities. Yeah. And you've got to bust a gut and hang around for years and get lucky to get that mythical staff job that enables you to just just sort of 
mess up and, yeah. and, and make mistakes and learn and get good. I see so many young people being like, I want to learn this, how to report this. I want to do that. But as we've touched on, there just isn't the training there. Like I worked with this one young person who said to me, I've never been edited like this. I'm not a particularly good editor. And all I'd said was, you need to go back and check this. You need to write a reply. You need to do that. And it was staggering to me because this was a journalist who had, has written for like bigger places, you know, is, is a bit along in their career. And they said, yeah, I've never been edited. You're the first person to rigorously check this. And I was like, what is going on that people do not have the time yeah. to do that? You might get still only 100 quid for a, a comment piece that you've written for a relatively well-known news outlet. Or you could get £200 for going on five minutes mm -hmm. and saying something really provocative on uh, Good Morning Britain that then gets clipped up and shared across exactly. the web. Clock up those five minute appearances and you've got enough money to pay the rent every month or slog away trying to get some pieces published that may or may not get read. That, that's, that's the incentive structure that leads people down that route. And often I feel sorry for the people who end up doing these um, basic provocative takes on the news because you know that it's going to haunt them for the rest of their Listen. career. It puts you in this situation where you're having a polarizing debate that isn't furthering actual conversation and it feels completely, you know, it's the outrage industrial complex in action. But it's like the wrongest people are the loudest, yeah. right? And that's what you see with punditry. And people then are like, all journalists are like this. This is, you know, why should we pay for this kind of bargain basement, bottom barrel conversation that's going on? And meanwhile, yeah. you've got something like, you know, the BuzzFeed News reporting on, say, the barking killer. They broke that wide open. They exposed barking police for being so negligent in the handling of the Stephen Port case. Mm. But we don't talk about that kind of stuff. We don't talk about that journalism. That's just seen as, and everyone's like, wow, this was amazing. Why don't we fund things like that? It's like, why don't we fund things like that? I wonder. And it's really interesting because, like, there was a stat, like, 14% of, like, Gen Zers use, like, TikTok to find our information about large news stories. And you've kind of already alluded to this, the fact that, like, as a personality online, you can, like, basically make money from, like, punditry talking about certain issues. And basically your, your income could come from subscribers, it could come from a Patreon, but also it could just come from brands that want to sponsor you because you have a large following and you have an opinion and all brands want to be like sentient these days and have values and stuff. So if they can attach themselves to someone who has an opinion and has the correct opinion on certain issues, they can make an income from it. But then I do worry about these people who are not trained up in reporting, becoming like the face of a kind of respectable news source and like what the dangers are, particularly in terms of like misinformation when it comes to big personalities becoming news voices online. I, I, I love TikTok. I love I love using TikTok. It's a much nicer place to to browse than Twitter is nowadays. Yeah. But but every time I find some 17-year-old in Arkansas <laughs> explaining uh, British politics based on a misreading of a Wikipedia page and it's got like three million views on like how this really works, and you go, Oh, this is so wrong. I don't even know where to start. You know, when you see these view counts on these these uh things, then you know. There is there is a desire to find out about the world and how it works. That hasn't changed. And a lot of the time when outlets are moaning that no one's reading their 3,000-word article, maybe the problem is it's a 3,000-word article. Yeah. Maybe it shouldn't be a 3,000-word article. Maybe it should be a 300-word article with an interesting graphic that explains it really clearly. The end game of all of this, I kind of think, is that you're going to end up with a, a, a quite influencer-led news world with a few outlets 
often behind a paywall doing the heavy lifting that mm. then sort of seeps out through screen grabs of headlines. It, it, it's a very disjointed way of, of reading the news. And I was even thinking a lot about, particularly during COVID, a lot of the misinformation that was spread, I think about large online personalities who kind of present themselves as trusted sources and this whole idea that they, like, because they speak to a niche community and you kind of spoke about journalism now being broken down into those things where it's like you have your really niche substack and it speaks to this people and whatnot. But some of those niches are quite large. And I particularly remember a lot around like kind of the, the African and Caribbean community, like the lack of like vaccine uptake. And when you think of kind of the the big online like black uh, creators who speak directly to that community, they were very like anti-vax or they kind of believed in certain things. And I wonder like as Facebook and Twitter and TikTok essentially become like publishers themselves because everyone puts their content and their news on there and it gets shared on the platform. Do you think that they have a responsibility to regulate harder or like who who do we kind of blame for growing misinformation when trusted publications can't afford to keep up? I mean, I mean Twitter has basically given up on everything. Oh, Elon Musk, so I'm not sure they're going to do anything. Responsibility? I mean, it's on the individuals, but the incentive structure is the real problem. Yeah. If the incentive structure is to go harder and weirder and, and more extreme, then people are going to do that. If there is an algorithm that can be cracked, people will eventually crack it. Yeah. And, you know, on a low level, places like BuzzFeed worked out how to make things go viral. And then... 10 years on, it's got darker and darker and darker and people can work out how to spread hate or work yes. out how to uh, exploit it for financial means. I don't really know if regulation would work. I think it's sort of going to come down to whether or not the public buy what the person is selling mm. and it's quite hard to stop them. And it's always going to be the more extreme stuff in the current environment that we have that works. There's always been cranks. There's always been people who speak to communities with like misinformation, etc. But... Mm when the printing press was around, it was via pamphlets and now you can send a tweet out. But I think I think it's interesting that we've never existed at a time where we anyone has written so much. Like everyone writes all the time, all day on social media, posting. We've never seen each other so much. Mm. And I do think that overwhelm of information is why people seek out silos. Because you, like you were saying earlier, Jim, people want to know where the trustworthy news sources are. They want to find something they connect with. But there's nothing guiding them because there's so many different conflicting opinions out there. There's no one pointing to this is the right thing. And I think that media literacy and critical thinking has perhaps decreased over the last 10 years because mm. there's there's a suspicion, but I wouldn't say it has been a, accompanied by rising media literacy and the ability to sort of read all sources. And the more we get fragmented media sources and the more we get paywalls to pay for the news, the less that you can compare and contrast the way things are reported. People used to get papers like at the breakfast table and yeah. now it's like you get one tweet that leads you somewhere or you get on TikTok one place that leads you somewhere and it's so fragmented and if you have to go and research the rest of that story, who else, who is clicking out there, who is Googling, is this true? Not all of this is bad, by the way. Like, I'm covering a lot of the phone hacking trials at the moment um, involving Prince Harry and when you read what the tabloid press was up to in the even only 15 years ago, it's vile. It's bad. <laughs> they wouldn't get away with it today. They'd be called out instantly. I think it's very dangerous to mourn what went before because we're definitely in a better place on some things, including representation and, yeah, and just basically not being anything like as vile as a nation in terms of our media. So I want you guys to look into your crystal ball and I want to talk about what you see for the future of digital media in the UK. The, the real challenge over the next decade is going to be really whether the outlets that are currently just about getting by um, 
kind of enter a death spiral or not. So whether those mm. local outlets that are struggling at the moment, what do they look like in five years' time when they've had to cut 50% of their staff? Are they even really relevant to anyone? Yeah. What about the magazines that at the moment can get enough to pay a couple of writers to do okay, but they're not able to do that in a few years' time? I just fear that the continued dross that you find in a Google results search for key terms, mm. that the the rush to just try and keep those click numbers high will, will sort of sully some of the better work that's going on beneath the radar. Uh, and as ever, the middle ground's dying. It's it's either mass market or niche. I think the idea of being able to be part of and support sustainable media brands is going to become a huge buzzword. I think the word sustainable is going to be used a lot yeah. because people want to feel like they're part of something. I think we'll see more things like the Bristol Co-op where we also see members literally funding the journalism and having a stake in what kind of things are being reported. It's so fascinating because the middle in general across society is being squeezed out. If you look even as people in terms of like the middle, the squeeze middle, it is the first thing to go. If you're upset about these closures and you hate losing the media that you love, then sign up to support them and become a member because we need to start living our raps, guys. We can't say that we're upset about losing all of this media if we're not doing anything to support them, period. This week's episode was produced by Hattie Moya, sound design by Marla Seto, original music by Axel Kakute, and the executive producer is Maz Ebtaj. We'll catch you next Thursday. This is The Guardian. to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.